Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. And with me today is Charlotte McDonald Gibson, who has a new book out, Far Out it's called, and it's all about terrorism, the minds of young people, particularly those in Western countries who have succumbed to violent extremists around the world. Charlotte, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Lee. Tell me about the start of the book. Where did the genesis come from and how did you get going? Well, my speciality in the past has really been writing about different sort of issues linked mostly to sort of human rights and migration, and in particular, refugee issues. So my first book, Castaway, was about the the refugee crisis, and it told the story of five people who'd arrived in Europe over the last few years to really sort of weave in the political context, the refugee crisis, the human stories of the refugee crisis. So this is what was what my background was in. It was sort of looking at people perceived to be the victims of the, these times in which we live, you know, with economic crisis, with an increase in hate speech, with, you know, all increase in extremism. So it was all these kind of reasons. Yep. Um, but then in around March, well, in exactly March 2016, I was caught up in the, the bombings in Brussels airport, uh, in which 19 people were killed by three Islamist extremists. And sort of in the aftermath of that, I remember being quite, obviously quite, quite shaken by this event, but it really started to make me think about how we look at the world we live in today and the problems in which the world we live in today. And it was sort of thinking about, well, I've written about it from one side, about the side of the the, the perceived victims of the times in which we live, but then I was interested in looking at the other side because I don't think we can really assess the issues that have gone wrong in our societies unless we look at the other side and the people who are the perpetrators of these kind of hateful acts and try and unpick how somebody got to that point, went down that path to extremism. And so that was really the catalyst for me to think, well, I need to look at both sides. I need to try and understand the other side as well in order to make sense of these very difficult times in which we live. You've done a very good job of it too, I might add. Uh, When it comes to terrorism, counter-terrorism, which is, uh, they're not always great titles, including war on terrorism, I might add. But we tend to think of ISIS, Al-Qaeda in Southeast Asia, it was Gemma Islamia, J-I, then J-A-T, which replaced it later on. But you've kind of delved into the backgrounds of eight people from very, not just Western backgrounds, I mean, they all grew up in uh, or migrated to Western countries from across Europe to Australia. And uh, they all have very individual stories to tell how they wound up where they did. What surprised me about most of them is that they actually had very strong characters. I think what I was definitely trying to do was give people a fresh perspective, really, because we all have our, our preconceptions of who or what an, an extremist is. Sure. Um, you d- discussed there quite a few examples of Islamist extremism in, in different countries in, in Asia, for example. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we often view extremism through this very securitized lens. So we think about terrorism, violent extremism, the threat, how can we deal with it from a security perspective? And I think a lot of governments have really focused on that. But we're not really going to tackle the issue unless we look at the whole circumstances that lead people to that point where they choose to go down that path towards extremism and and at the far end towards violent extremism, the terrorist groups that you're talking about there. So that was the idea to really sort of break it down, to try and get rid of that ideological perspective. 
So that was why I chose these eight individuals who are from across different ideologies, and not just different ideologies, different countries, different sort of generations. So we have everything from a, a Norwegian woman from an aristocratic family who ended up in a Marxist cult in the 1980s, <laughs> yeah. all the way through to a, a young a boy or a young English kid who went to Syria to fight with the Al Nusra Front to, to Al Qaeda. So by sort of stripping away those, you know, having a book focused only on Islamist extremism or, mm. or jihadi brides or, or the, the far right or neo-Nazis. The idea is to really find what the commonalities are in those individuals that transcend the ideology. And that is what I found absolutely fascinating researching. It was how many times these similarities, these commonalities came out in the strangest of ways sometimes. And it, and it really made you see that just focusing on, here's this ideology, let's stop this person being an Islamist terrorist, that isn't going to solve the problem. That's just the tip of the iceberg. You really need to pull right back to the broader societal problems if we're really going to address extremism in our societies today. I think you did a terrific job when you have characters like Tom Olson and uh, pardon me if my, my pronunciations are wrong, but uh, Matt Kapanet. Matt Kapitanovich. Yeah, thank yes, you. Kapitanovich. Yeah. But I mean, these guys were sort of far-right neo-Nazis, and I still felt dreadfully sorry for them. And speaking as a rapidly approaching old man, uh, <laughs> you kind of do think that they're all very young. They all want more out of life. None of them have lived very long, so they haven't got that much, which I think is always a mistake of young people's expectations. But one of the common problems I kind of took away from the book was that they they needed individual attention. They weren't being listened mm. to. They did have needs, and there just didn't seem to be anyone mm. there for them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think what you say about sort of feeling that empathy for them is really interesting, because I did as well, especially this idea of, being young and that really strong feeling you have, you know, in your in your teens yeah. and even into your early 20s, where you really want to have some sort of impact on the world. You, you want to matter. You want your voice to matter. And there's that real sort of sense of, of rage and you feel these feelings of injustice so strongly. I, mean, I really remember that from being a teenager. I think I was sort of really quite militant about animal rights and, you know, As I was like, so been. angry and I wanted to go and protest and throw stones yeah. at cattle trucks and all these kind of things. I remember those feelings so strongly. And I think back to those days and what if there had been somebody who'd sort of spotted that in me and decided to exploit those feelings that I had I mean I could have ended up on one of those tracks so I think it's really important that we recognize the universality of these kind of feelings that are so easy to exploit so I think that was really key and yet this idea of feeling powerless of feeling voiceless uh, that came across so so strongly and I think that's getting worse I think as we have this more of a disconnect as well between government and people, and I think that's universal across many, many countries around the world, that you mm -hmm. have this disconnect, you have growing inequality. So you have all these all these societal issues which aren't getting any better, which are contributing to extremism. So that doesn't bode very well for the future unless we start to address these issues. Who are your favourites? Do you have any? Well, I think it's interesting the people that I felt the most commonality with. Yeah. And maybe it's obvious to say, but the two women in the book, definitely, because that's Catherine, the, the Norwegian woman that I spoke about, who ended up being recruited into a Marxist cult in the 1980s. Again, when she talked about her childhood, she talked about being a teenager and, and watching sort of live aid on the television and being so moved by the, the Ethiopian famine and like the sense of injustice that she felt like she, she couldn't do anything about it. 
You know, yeah. it was all of that came from such a good place. You know, she really wanted to have a positive impact on the world. And this is what this creature is. In this case, it was one very manipulative individual who really recruited her into this cult, which is obviously a, a different process to somebody radicalizing online, which is, we can talk about that a bit more later, but see how, yeah. how those feelings that I felt I had too were manipulated. For me, it really struck a chord. And the same with the other woman in the book, Hadiya Masaya. She ended up joining the Islamist extreme group, Hizbut Tahir. And again, she came from that same place. And what I found was fascinating was that both her and Catherine had cited Live Aid and the Ethiopian famine as being this key event in their lives, which had really opened their eyes to injustice mm. elsewhere. But where, you know, they'd both, then they'd both gone down such different paths. And I think that really illustrated how similar the motives can be. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that Live Aid turned loads of people into extremists, but the, the point is that there's this confluence of all these different reasons, these external reasons, internal reasons, all coming together at a pivotal point in this person's life. So it's a really a set of circumstances that has to happen. But it's so interesting to see those commonalities and, and just, just to see those, to, to feel that understanding and that sort of commonality between them. So I would say they were, they were the ones I felt most, right. um, most in tune with their stories. Right. Being of a similar vintage to uh, Catherine and Hadia, I also remember the Live Aid concert very, very well. I also remember studying genocide as a subject, part of a subject, last year of high school. And then as we were finishing up, when we got word about Pol Pot and uh, mm. the slaughter of three million people, and it was kind of mm. Live Aid came on, it was a few years later, but this was all kind of, your book looks at the last 20 years, that period was very stark in my mind as well. And Live Aid made an enormous difference. I, in fact, I think it had a much bigger impact than, say, Woodstock. And uh, it really mm. did carry at the time. Yeah. Peter Sitonovic, he's an interesting yeah. one. I mean, he just seems a bit like a bit of a loose nut as a teenager, which is, uh, you know, a, a lot of teenagers are. And he mm. one photograph and he's mm. kind of... Take, take us into Peter's story because there's a bit more to it than just one yeah. photograph. Yeah, Peter's Peter's story is very interesting. So you know, just to sort of maybe trigger the memories of your uh, uh, listeners, I mean, Peter Sidonovich is the young man whose photograph was taken at the Charlottesville protest in West Virginia, and that was the protest at which uh, a young anti-racist activist was killed. And there's this very famous photo of Peter sort of screaming. It was a torchlight protest the night before, full of white nationalists, openly neo-Nazi people, Ku Klux Klan members, the most you know, horrible mix of, of very angry young men. And he, <laughs> his photograph was taken sort of screaming, looking absolutely full of rage. So he essentially became the face of the far right. And his, his picture is still used all the time. On Twitter, an article is published about far-right nationalists. You'll see Peter's picture. There he is, holding a sticky torch, screaming, right. come up. So he has become shorthand, you know, for, for, for the phenomena of, you know, especially sort of white nationalism entering the mainstream because, you know, his head isn't shaved. He looks like your college schoolboy next door sort of neighbour type thing. Yeah. But yeah, his story is fascinating because he's gone through this very difficult process of trying to work out what he's done wrong, not fully understanding it, wanting to do the right thing, trying to do the right thing, then making mistakes and getting it wrong, and then getting very angry and getting very confused. I mean, his journey is basically incredibly human. It's such a human journey of sort of thinking, well, I've made a mistake. 
How do I make up for that mistake? Mm -hmm. And he has done lots of, you know, done lots of things right to try and make up for this mistake. He's worked with, because he's American, but he ended up studying in London at LSE um, soon after uh, for various reasons. So he ended up working for a counter-extremism organization in London run by a former Islamist extremist to try and work building bridges in the local communities and things. He has um, reached out to sort of anti-racism organizations in the United States to try and work with them. So he's done a lot right. But he also, he struggles to, to fully understand what he did wrong. So it's very much a process. But the way that the world is so polarized right now, people won't give him a chance to, to say he's sorry. So he's really, really struggling in his life now. He can't get a job. He can't get into university. So it's kind of like, well, you have to be perfect. So this very human journey that he's going through, which all, you know, which people who work in extremism say is completely normal. You don't de-radicalize yeah. overnight. This idea that suddenly, oh, I made a mistake. Now, I'm, now I know exactly what my mistake was. I know how to put it right. I'm going to be a perfect, liberal, ideal person from this point. That is completely unrealistic. But that is the expectation that society places on people, especially people from the far right. So he's been really struggling. And I find his story, uh, well, his, just, his story is fascinating because it reflects the complexity of being a human being. But it seems in this sort of polarized world, we're not allowed, we're not afforded the, the ability to be a complex human being anymore. We have to be one thing or another. It has to be black or white with nothing in between. So for me, that story really illustrated the, the problems with looking at the world like that. Sure. And if that photograph was never taken, no one would know who he was. He, be, he may well have changed and carried on the way he is now. But at the same time, the vilification that came with that one photograph is quite extraordinary. And one of the reasons I'm asking this is because he is from the far right. And ask a dirty question. Does the left, the extreme left, get an easier ride than, say, the far right, when both of them can be guilty of the same sins. And I ask that where you've got Shane Hunter and Toby Cook. I think that's a great example of both sides of the political spectrum. But when youth acts up, when youth protests and they're from the left, which is kind of the experience that carried on for decades, it's, you know, the adult attitude was always, well, you know, that's what they do at university kind of thing. But uh, the far right, no one ever cuts them any slack, which I suspect goes all the way back to World War Two. But uh, are there yeah. some sort of real prejudices built in there? Should people who are saying, oops, I went into the far right, you know, give me a go, please? I, it's, a, it's a little bit different than coming from the left. Oh, absolutely. There has been a, a sort of systematic downplaying of far left extremism and far left violence over the past decade. And I think that's problematic. The reason why it is a case, there is more uh, death linked to far right <clears throat> violent extremism than there is to the far left. I mean, the statistics are, are very, very clear that they're in the book. But, you know, right. you don't tend to get the mass shootings like you got in, in Buffalo, just uh, in New York State, uh, just on Saturday when 10 people were killed in a racially motivated shooting. That right. doesn't tend to happen on the far left. So there is a, a reason why there has been more of a focus on the far right and, and a valid reason. But you can't just ignore the fact that there is this very extreme far left violence as well, because that is fueling these sort of cycles of mistrust, these cycles of violence. I mean, you use the example there of, of Toby and Shane in Australia. And I, again, I found their story very interesting because they were both on different sides and they were just fueling each other. So they just, you know, they just had both the, the, the far left and the far right would just turn up at these rallies and basically have a bit of a ruckus and then off they go. And so sort of any ideological goals were sort of thrown out the window on either side. It was just really about having a bit of a having a bit of a, a go at each other <laughs> punch um, up and a so laugh I, 
yeah. But I think that um, it's about media coverage as well. It's about the media coverage yeah. of it, and I think that it depends on which media you're you're looking at as well. If you look in the in in the US, you have that very skewed far right sort of media set who would really go against the sort of antifa uh, sure. far left in in there. So it sort of depends on what media you're reading um, will give a, a sort of different impression. But yeah, I think the, the far left hasn't had enough coverage. It needs more attention. And if you look at the figures in Europe, especially, far left violence is on the rise in sort of various different countries. And so I think it's something that, that needs to be needs to be taken seriously. Right. And the far right have always had the Ku Klux Klan as their poster child. So that sort of puts them in a box Uh, Where where I think your book is also timely is that both of us have spent a lot of time in Southeast Asia and done our fair share of covering militancy, Islamic militancy, the the Bali bombings, there are all sorts of Uh dreadful stuff that occurred over the last 20 years. Now, it all seems to have gone away and, and the security people are quite vocal behind the lines in saying that COVID has had a lot to do with that, with with Mm. that kind of security legislation and crackdowns of of the like. It will come back. I don't think anybody thinks it's gone away forever. What do you think governments should be doing now? And I ask that in the sense that you've dealt with people of all different ethnic backgrounds who have come basically from Western countries and then been attracted to places like Syria, groups like ISIS. It hasn't gone away, and by all likelihood, it will return. That's what the security boffins are telling us. How do you think it will re-emerge, and what should governments be doing now, given the experiences, particularly from the late 1990s through till uh, 2015, Syria and ISIS? Yeah, I think it, it's a really good point because it's so important that people do not take their eye off the ball because extremism, violent extremism, polarisation, it hasn't gone away. It's got worse. And, and certainly you see that with so many different issues that when something's quiet for a couple of years, governments just say, oh, great, it's, it's gone away. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But that's not the case. If we, if we look at extremism, COVID and the impact of coronavirus lockdowns, they're going to be long lasting. It's going to have a huge impact on extremism because coronavirus created exactly the kind of conditions in which extremism does thrive. So people felt lonely. They felt alienated. They felt mistrustful of what they're being told by their governments. They spent more time online, which is obviously a huge radicalizing force. So the conditions for extremism are there more than ever before, I would say. So I don't think we've seen the full impact of coronavirus on extremism. And in fact, the Buffalo shooting at the weekend in the Killers Manifesto, he explicitly said, oh, I I went on to 4chan because I was bored during corona. So there he explicitly states there was a link between the two. And I think we'll see it's the same across different ideologies as well and in different countries. But it's created these conditions that hasn't gone away. When that starts manifest itself, well, we just have to wait and see. But it does mean that governments have to not take their eye off the ball and they have to not just look at it from a security perspective. Yes, they do. you do have to look at it from a security perspective as well, but you have to look at it from a societal perspective. What are those underlying reasons? Those feelings of loneliness, increase in mental health issues, depression caused by the coronavirus, problems with lack of funding, that's a huge one. All of these sort of, these sort of pillars of society are the things that make people feel alienated. So you need to keep investing. You need to keep investing in those sort of pillars of society that make people feel like they belong to so that that's, you know, housing, mental health services, education, like really looking at your education systems. So it's really going into the, the, the nitty gritty of the social 
structures that make people feel like they belong or don't belong. And it's a difficult one in a way because these are mm. huge issues that have sort of evaded sort of public solution for a very, very long time. So it makes it very difficult to say, well, you need to overhaul your education systems. You need to have much better housing systems, but that these don't happen overnight. But I think it's really important that we recognize that these are contributing factors to extremism. Even if we know that we can't change that in the short term, the fact that governments, society, NGOs, people working in these sort of fields, people working in security even, take the time to understand what those reasons are, take the time to, to recognize that it isn't just about the ideology, it isn't just some angry young man, that there's all these other reasons. I think that is a really important first step, that recognition of the, of the really multifaceted background to these people turning to extremism. And then you can start to think about how you tackle those things. Your COVID analogy really it works well. I'm, I'm actually thinking of China. The complete and utter lockdown, particularly in Shanghai, that seems to be going on forever and the zero case policy that the Chinese government seems to be looking for by many people is basically seen as an excuse to maintain security uh, mm. until after the China Congress in October, the, uh, which they have every five years. But I was reading earlier today that China is cancelling events to be staged next year because of COVID. These are like sports events mid late next year which seems to indicate that how long are they going to lock down shanghai for what sort of alienation is that going to cause it's quite an extraordinary decision to take and you can only wonder what is going to come out of that as you mentioned the buffalo shooting yeah yeah the kind of dissent that government policies are creating is a really interesting one to follow because we have seen opportunistic sort of nationalist parties and politicians really sort of getting on the sort of anti-vax, anti-lockdown bandwagon as well. And in a way, in COVID, we've seen quite a lot of uh, mainstreaming of conspiracy and far-right narratives. And I think that's been really fascinating that we've seen this sort of convergence of the sort of far left and the far right over over coronavirus, yes, this, this, this famous sort of horseshoe of politics where yep. the far left and the far right end up closer together than the, than the mainstream. And we've seen that in, in these societies. And I'm interested in the China example, of course, because then you've got a completely different system there. So where does dissent? And there, this is another really difficult one with looking at extremism because there is legitimate dissent. And when does legitimate dissent make that pathway to extremism? Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's a good thing to be able to question your governments. We have to have those opportunities to question our governments, which we take, which, you know, I take for granted here in the Netherlands, but of course people in China don't have that same opportunity to do that. So again, this is one thing that, that comes up again and again is how do we encourage people to be questioning of their government's actions, to have a healthy level of dissent without tipping it onto that path to extremism? And I wonder if in countries where you can't openly voice dissent, then you don't have many other options. To going towards the more extreme is the only option you have when you want to have that dissenting voice. So that could be a potential consequence. Well, this is another area, particularly in Indochina, which I made mention of before in previous podcasts. You've got the Mekong River in a four-year drought. Fish catches have never been lower. Water levels have never been lower. The Chinese and Lao have been accused of hoarding water. You've got 65 to 70 million people living in that basin who rely on the fish catch for their source of protein. They survive hand to mouth. And there are quite a few security analysts who are putting the Mekong River Basin up there with the South China Sea is a potential flashpoint. I noticed your definition of terrorism, which the way I lectured at university about it is basically a poor man's 
form of warfare, regardless of the cause. It's cheap and it's easy. It's a bag of chlorine. It's stuff you can buy in a hardware shop. Go out and blow up people and make a political statement. And the potential reasons for people to deploy this type of technique to get attention to governments yeah. that aren't listening. Absolutely. I think that that's a really interesting one. I mean, you and I have both spent time in Afghanistan as well. Indeed. And there you you have the, the situation where you, if you look at the Taliban and you would say, okay, the Taliban, extremists, why would people in the countryside support the extremists? But you need to understand what the needs of a people in a country are. And if the government isn't meeting their needs, they will look elsewhere to meet their needs. So it's not that people are terrorists or are violent extremists, but if you, you look in a situation where there's really dire conditions and the government isn't meeting the needs, people will look to other groups to meet those needs. So I think that there is a, a different context when we look at somewhere like Afghanistan, or we look at somewhere where you have insurgencies in, in very deprived areas, areas where they don't have enough food to eat. I mean, that's a different circumstance to somebody radicalizing in the West. But underneath it all, again, there are some similarities, and that is that feeling of your needs not being addressed. You know, and you have a whole sort of range there of how they're not being addressed, but the underlying yeah. feelings can be very much the same. Right. In regards to 4chan, 8chan, these uh, digital networks, how important were they and are they now? Are they, do they still matter? They obviously played oh, very... an important part in the characters you wrote about in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these uh, online forums, 4chan, you mentioned, I mean, one of the, the guys in my book, Matt Kapitanovich, he, he ended up being sort of self-radicalised because his, his mother had passed away when he was 17. He was feeling really alienated, really lonely. He was feeling really angry. And then he went on these chat boards and there's loads of other really angry, mostly young men. And they're sort of giving you, spewing out this anti-Semitic, racist rhetoric. They're sort of, he said it was like they were, that he sort of ended up spending six, seven hours a day just looking at his phone, refreshing these threads on 4chan and just reading more and more of this hateful, racist, anti-Semitic and also sort of ironic, sort of jokey content as well. And all of it indoctrinated him. So all by himself, sitting here looking at his phone, he sort of indoctrinated himself into this full one white nationalist worldview without anyone ever knowing. And, and Mac is particularly interesting as well because his family were Bosnian uh, Muslim uh, refugees from um, the war in the former Yugoslavia who'd come to the United States. So this is a, a young kid with a, a Muslim background who ended up sitting there believing that migrants shouldn't be in America. So uh, that was an extraordinary case for me is how somebody can just self-radicalise all by themselves. And I think this content is still there. It's still on 4chan. Again, as you said, the Buffalo shooter was on yep. 4chan. And then we could get into the whole discussion about the social media algorithms on YouTube, which send people to, to more and more extreme content. But I think what really worries me is that this idea that somehow this is going to stop. And I think we need to almost get rid of that idea because this hate speech isn't going to go away. You know, even if you, you know, you'd have to ban the internet entirely to get rid of hate speech. You know, you, 4chan, maybe, you know, you get 4chan to clean up. It's like something else will appear somewhere. I mean, hate speech, online polarization, this is with us to stay, really. So I think what's important is we look at how to inoculate young people against the sort of the hate speech that they will inevitably encounter. So I think in a way we need to start looking at that rather than every time we have these sort of acts. So like, oh, you know, online hate speech is awful. We need to get rid of it, which is true. 
but it's unrealistic. So let's look at it more holistically. How can we educate our young people today, our next generation, so that they can better separate fact from fiction, so that they can recognize hate speech, that they have the, the resilience and the strength to stand up to it when they see it. So I think we really need to start thinking about it in a, in a different way rather than, we, we need to keep the pressure on the social media companies. We need to sort of keep trying to get them to get rid of the hate speech, but we're unrealistic if we think that it's going to disappear entirely. No, I think you're quite right. And so going back to Live Aid, uh, television, and in those days we were told don't watch too much television kind of thing, and it was also new. But the way it's moved now is that the individual who can be angry can react to a major global event and go out and do something about it in his local community, which I don't really think the people who came up with the term think globally, act locally, I really don't think that's what they meant. But the the other point being, though, is that at what point, uh, and I do think it has changed, but only slightly, do uh, the people who control and own these digital platforms accept responsibility and start behaving more like a traditional publisher as opposed to pretending it's just the community pin-up board and, of course, anyone can throw anything up there. I mean, they're making the money and at the same time yeah. absolving themselves of the rights and responsibilities that should go along with such a powerful tool to communicate. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely that social media platforms like uh, Facebook in particular should be made to adhere to the same standards as, as news publishers. Uh, that they should be responsible for their content and they should be made to be responsible for their content. And that is up to, to governments and, and regulators. And is it going to happen? Oh, I just, I, I don't know. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of activism on that front. And who knows? But I, I think that all of these things will make a big difference because, you know, you've just got all these platforms where things can be completely made up and out they go and people believe them now. And it, it's difficult to know how to address that. But I do think it was interesting that you mentioned this idea of TV. Then when we were kids, it was like, oh, watching TV is dangerous. And it's the same thing with sort of, you know, the video nasties and the sort of horror films that were out when I was a, a right. kid and a teenager. And everyone thought like watching Child's Play was going to turn us all into, into murderers <laughs> um, on the television. Yeah. So you do have these moral panics. And what we see as a moral panic, I guess, reflects our generation and, and what we grew up with. So I do try and keep that in mind when thinking about freedom of speech on the internet and what's out there and how dangerous it is that like I said that we look back and sort of laugh at the things that we were told were going to be terribly dangerous for us so I think we've got to keep that in perspective and think about the positive aspects as well we talked about voicelessness and this feelings of powerlessness and, and the internet has allowed uh, marginalized groups to mobilize and to have a voice in a way that they didn't before and allow sort of connections that didn't happen before so I think it's, it is important to, to keep sight of the positive because you can just get very very uh, pessimistic and depressed if you just look at it from that negative perspective. And on that positive note, Charlotte McDonald Gibson, author of Far Out, Encounters with Extremists, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Luke. It's been a pleasure. Walla.